You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. All right, welcome again, uh, everybody. We're back talking again with uh, Petri Tika. And when we last, last were talking, we were talking about the importance of proclaiming the gospel. And sometimes people get concerned if we're talking about Christian universalism. Well, what does that mean for the gospel? And how do we how do we proclaim it? So let's let's get started right there, Petri. What are some things that you think about are helpful when we think about proclaiming a gospel that's important right now, but it's also leading to the ultimate restoration of all things? So what are some your some of your thoughts about that? Well, if I can just start with my own church background, which is being a Lutheran, uh a thing that's always been important for me is the absolute forgiveness of sins in the here and now. You know, freedom from that guilt, from shame, and and the power of sin in the here and now, so that we can have personal assurance that everything's all right. And, you know, because all of us have gone astray, and you really need the power of Christ to be you know, to have that, and the blood of Christ to have that full forgiveness and assurance in your heart. And I think that's, a, a, I think some people, also in the Lutheran tradition, might think that if you just talk about future salvation or future hope, then you miss out on the totality of forgiveness of sins in the here and now and the proclamation of that sort of forgiveness that can free you from your sins in the here and now. Of course, it also includes acceptance of it, but in Lutheran tradition, you you have an emphasis on the actual proclamation of it as affecting something in the heart of the listener. And also it applies to baptism and, and Eucharist, but that's another issue, And uh, but related. But anyway, what I was saying is that in in the Luther in my Lutheran tradition, and I think this is just in the end general Christian tradition, but it's very much emphasized in the Lutheran tradition that it's very important for people to hear that they're forgiven in the here and now. And I felt that's very been very important for me in my faith journey. And what I really want to do is that to give nobody any impression that universal salvation would somehow be against this sort of thinking that there's forgiveness of sins that you can have in the here and now which will give you so much freedom and joy and, and, and freedom from guilt, which I think all of us need to one extent or another. And Yeah, that, what I, what I've, what's helped me is to think that, that what's going on there is that by heaven, but what faith allows me to experience that in which I've already been included. So if I don't, if I don't have faith, if I don't believe that this forgiveness has really been affected for me, then I cannot live in the power of that. Then I cannot live in the power of that forgiveness. So the faith, my faith isn't what makes it happen or makes it real, but my faith is what allows me to experience it really and truly in uh, my own life. That's right. And I think the Lutheran's perspective is Lutherans actually believe that Christ died for all 
and that uh, and God has done everything for our salvation. What that in practice means in Lutheranism, in is in terms of proclamation and faith, is that because Christ has actually died for absolutely everybody, that's the normal Lutheran interpretation, anyways, without mm-hmm. any you know further considerations. What it means is that you can have assurance that when somebody pronounces the forgiveness of sins to you, whether it's a pastor or somebody else, you can believe that because that's objectively true and it's contained in the word that you receive in your ear. And because it's objectively true, you can have assurance. And uh, what this means is that and it's not even up like in Armenian tradition. You think that you have to sort of make some sort of a free will decision because before it might be actually fully true to you. It's it's a complicated thing. But in Lutheran mm-hmm. theology, the point is that it's there in the Word, and the Word also gives you the Holy Spirit to have the power to believe in it. So the Word of, of proclamation of sins is very powerful because it's not only about Jesus; it's also about the Holy Spirit giving you the faith. To believe in the word, but the so problem that says that, yeah. that says that proclamation that says that proclamation is still very important in the here and the now. Yeah, and that's the Lutheran perspective. But again, like I, we were talking in the previous podcast, what Lutherans uh, have often objected to is that they think that if you only talk about some general salvation of everybody that's going to happen in the end, that you forget to preach the word of power in the here and now that your sins are forgiven right now. They think it just becomes this sort of generic thing and it doesn't impl- doesn't have that power, you know, which is very odd because I think in the opposite way, I think, you know, that, you know, the idea is that because everybody, because God, Christ died for everybody and by his resurrection, he unleashed the power of his love and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the, which is the power of the future into the world. Mm-hmm. That's why you can believe that the assurance is not going to let you down in the end. You know, if you proclaim forgiveness of sins in the here and now, uh, the only way you can actually believe it in the end is you believe if you believe that it the the word of forgiveness, which is ultimately from Jesus. You know, if you believe that it's going to take you through everything, and that's believing in universal salvation. And this is a realization I've actually come to through a Lutheran theologian who does called Robert Jensen, who doesn't, you, you know, talk, you know, straight on about universal salvation. But he has stuff like this, that the uh, Holy Spirit is the power of the future and he's the guarantee of the word of forgiveness. So... I would say that universal salvation actually guarantees the thing that you can actually trust that God has done everything and he will take care of you through what he says to you, through how he communicates to to you, through this word of the gospel and through everything Mm -hmm. else that he uses. You know, so actually I think universal salvation is, you know, you know, necessary for the power of the gospel and actually if you search for a blog called Eclectic Orthodoxy by an Orthodox blogger called Aidan Kimmel, who's an Orthodox priest, he's written yeah. things like this about Robert Jensen, and and he basically uses Robert Jensen uh, as you know affirming universal salvation, even though Jensen doesn't directly talk about it. But what I mean is that Jensen is also a Lutheran theologian, so that's another instance. Like we were talking about God's love and God's power to save in Lutheranism, they're combined. That's one thing in Lutheranism that leads to universal salvation. But there's also this 
you know, idea ideas that you can find in theologians like Robert Jensen that the uh, Holy Spirit is the power of the future and he really gives, empowers the gospel to fully accomplish what it should do. I mean, he doesn't go quite as far as to say that this means that everybody's going to be saved, but it's really saying, I think the main thing is here that universal salvation or salvation of any kind needs to be grounded on the Trinity. And I personally think if you ground it on the Trinity and if you ground it in the actions of God, you will have ultimately universal salvation. Because I think what we are going, what what I really want to say here and what relates to your book also is that I think universal salvation is ultimately not about like, oh, there's this doctrine about everybody's being saved, you know? And it is, mm-hmm. a do- I think it's a true doctrine. I'm not saying that, but... But what I believe it's ultimately about is about empowering people to really believe that God's passion for us is true, that God's love for us is true, and that we can live in that present present moment and in everything in that, you know. Because what I what I mean here is that, you know, recently when I've done my uh, doctoral thesis, I've started to think about, you know, I was reading an, a, a theologian called Eleanor Stump, who's not a universalist, but who has very interesting thoughts. And, and uh, you know, but, and I'm comparing her thoughts to Thomas Talbot's thoughts. And, mm-hmm. but what she says is that Thomas Aquinas, this famous medieval theologian, basically teaches that God, that God, God's love or love in general is composed of two parts. God's sort of good desire for us, you know, mm-hmm. that he wants the best for us. And also the the other aspect is God's passion, God's desire for union with us, and I think that's the you know that's the thing that you often forget about. You just talk about God doing His best, but what about God you know to save us and then He might fail? But what if God's passion, you know, nobody, you know, if God is love and God's passion for us is also part of His love, what if He fails, you know, in His love? What what would that mean for His heart? Mm-hmm. that would absolutely tear it apart and that would be a very terrible you know problem for for a lot of theology and a lot of practical thinking about god because we we believe in god because he's the you know the all powerful love and what it, what it means is that 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 also he's not you know how would i say god is god can be sad but when he's sad he does it for a reason he doesn't isn't suffering in the same sense that we are in the same sense that uh, that it's imposed on him. God knows what's happening, and if God's, if God can be, if it can be said that God suffers or is sad, it's only because he knows what's happening and he wants to save us and he's intending to save us. So there's never that sense. How would I say that? God is in traditional Christian theology. You have never, you've never had this thought in any case that God would be sad in the end. But wouldn't God be sad in the, you know, as sort of an externally imposed feeling on Him? Because God's not controlled by emotions. Well, like, yeah, we will we finally enter into, the idea is we will finally enter, enter into the joy of God, so that so that the joy of God is will be complete when God is finally all. And all. So we've talked about two aspects of the gospel. We've talked about forgiveness in the here and now, and we've talked about the idea of the, of the ultimate fulfillment and the joy of God when all of God's children are finally home. But there's another part of the gospel 
where Jesus proclaims the good news that the kingdom of God is now present and here among us. And he, he demonstrates acts of great spiritual power and healings. And he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount how it is that we can live now, uh, practically speaking, in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we can experience the power of all of this right now in the present moment. So how does that play into your thinking about the gospel, about Jesus' proclamation, about the good news that the, God, that the kingdom of God is now here and present among us? Well, the thing is that what I was saying about God's passion for us, I think that's re that relates to what uh, this whole thing, you know, is that because if you, I think the perspective of universal salvation ultimately is about believing in God's passion for us in the here and now, that it's real, that there's no hindrance for it. And what it means for us in living the in the present moment is that there's no hindrance to the gospel, to believing in the gospel, to proclaiming the gospel, to rejoicing in God's love for us, because we can know 110% surely, like beyond 100%, that he's mm -hmm. absolutely in love with us. He's, there's no hindrance to that. And that's everything that he does is based on his essence and love. And when I've done my thesis, the more and more I've thought about what does salvation mean in the end, of course it means union with God, relationship with God without any hindrance in the here and now, and ultimately even more so in an open way, in a clear way in the end. But mm -hmm. what it means is praise, you know, when I when you think about Philippians 2 and passages are like that, when it says every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord, the actual the word for confession means joyful, you know, confession, like yeah, even praise. It means praise. Yeah. Yeah, exomologero. Yeah, yeah, and it's used that word. That Greek word is used in the Greek version of the Bible uh, of the Old Testament in the Psalms to mean praising God. And Jesus also uses that in you know when he's praising the Father, he uses that same word. Was what in the was it in the Gospel of Matthew? So what I'm just saying is that I think there's a real power in praising God, and I think that's a thing actually. You know, you can. As a Lutheran, it's a sort of difficult, as a Lutheran Finn, I would say, that's a rather difficult concept in Finland because people can be rather, tend to be sort of consciously gloomy so that they don't get disappointed or something. It's not that like, <laughs> they are depressed necessarily, but, it, and a lot of the hymns are sort of sad and stuff. So when I ha hear sort of like American or especially like English Anglican hymns, they're often very, you know, you know, lofty and praise God, his full essence, like amazing love, how can it be that, oh, my God, shouldst thou for me? And so, so on. You, you really feel, and if you think about that, that power of the pray, praising God in the here and now, I think that's something i think that the gospel is trying to point us towards as a thing that empowers us and i think it's the thing that empowers together in the here and now and i think when i've you know done my thesis and and thought about these things you know you often talk about the universal salvation being like what uh, you talk about the difficult cases of people who who refuse and then what might happen to them and what might god do, do with punishment and so on, which is corrective punishment in the universal salvation understanding. But you often don't think about the positive aspect in the here and now. And that's what I would want the 
church to be empowered to is a full-on appreciation of praising God and feeling His presence in the here and now through praising Him together, because that's ultimately what we're going to do in according to the Bible. But I think it's a thing that's present in the here and now. One of the things that uh, that comes up in relation to this is if God is so loving and will um, ultimately wants to be all in all, then there you mentioned this. There's punishment and there's judgment, but it's it's ultimately it's not uh, it's not retributive but restorative. It's it's ultimately the purpose, the, the correction of love is ultimately to to correct and to heal and to purge. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about that, how you've worked that out in your theology? Well, the thing is that in in my from my b- background, uh, let me say, wait a second, I was sort of, there's so many thoughts going through my head, I have to write something down, I think, okay. that I'm going <laughs> to mention, mention later. So I would just go, come back and answer that question. Uh, so can you ask that question again, and I will, I will start to. Okay. Yeah. We talk when we talk about uh, God's love, God's amazing love for us that causes us to, you know, be in worship and praise. Um, but there is still this aspect of judgment that God is love, but that God judges, but God doesn't cease being loving in judgment, so that the judgments of God end up being in this way of thinking, end up being restorative. They're not retributive, they're restorative. They're, they're ultimately designed to purge us from those things that are clouding us or making us un, unable to be aware of the truth of God's love for us. So could you talk a little bit about how you understand the judgment passages that we find in the New Testament, for instance, in relationship to this idea of universal salvation? Well, there's like two aspects I might want to talk about. Uh, the first aspect is the, uh, you know, the first aspect that I'd like to talk about is how do you understand what it means for uh, Christ to save us from hell and what does what is the extent of of the work that Christ did, you know, and the second thing is that, you know, what does it mean for us to be, you know, corrected and how it actually I think relates to Christ being crucified for us. So the first aspect, you know, because often the, you know, the problem with, you know, this correction understanding, people have a problem with, for some reason, I think very often with the universal salvation teaching that uh, punishments can be corrective. And I think you even refer to the problem in your book by saying that uh, punishment by God isn't the actual thing that saves us because we're I think you're implying that we're not saved by works but through faith in Christ and the purpose of correction is to just point us back to Christ and and the problem is that you really want to avoid an understanding of correction where it's really uh, up to you to realize and do the works uh, in order to gain God's you know understanding or whatever yeah, we're we're not earning our salvation through our punishment. Yeah, but I still think it's true what you say is that Christ, you know, God the Father uses those, you know, corrections, whatever he wants to employ, uh, 
and he can do what he wants and and I'm not saying it would be somehow he will do something terrible, but it can feel terrible to us, you know, in that moment. And God uses those in order to show us Christ. And I think that's actually, again, you know, even if Lutheranism doesn't tries to avoid universal salvation traditionally, you know, mm-hmm. it's still a Lutheran understanding that God can use punishments and God uses his punishments and sort of his left hand in order to show lead us to Christ so whatever adversities we experience they're not meant for the purpose of us sort of going into despair but to show us that we need Christ which is actually a sort of corrective purpose in the Lutheran understanding but they don't or we don't draw always draw the total conclusion that all of God's punishments are about or corrections are leading us about leading us to Christ and to the crucified God. So that's that's the aspect of like that's one aspect that you, you it has to lead you to Christ that it's not the function of it it and the it the function of punishment isn't about you know some blind justice I would say and and that's really a problem with the what we know about a lot of people's understanding of justice is that just uh, God just punishes because he's just but that doesn't that's talking about justice about apart from Christ apart from grace grace and i think lutheranism has an aspect of justice which is about you know correction leading us to Christ and mm-hmm. but they just sometimes forget it in the end anyway even though you have this basic understanding about what correction is about which is a very good understanding and uh, this relates also to <clears throat> you know there's there was a lutheran theologian in the 18th century a lutheran pastor who became a u- believer in universal salvation and his name is georg klein nikolai and he wrote a book called the everlasting gospel if you google the everlasting uh, gospel and universal salvation or something you you'll probably find the book or mm-hmm. it was a book read by early, you know, uh, American universalists also. And right. as far as I can gather, he was a Lutheran. And uh, the thing about what he says in the original German language, actually, this doesn't happen. I, I found it out myself that this certain aspect related to punishment isn't in the English translation for some reason. But in the German version of the book, he, uh, Georg Klein Nikolaus, you know, implies that the pain and the torture or whatever that people feel in hell is related to the suffering and the anguish of Christ on the cross who uh, cried oh my god my god why have you abandoned me so he connects the suffering of those who are in an impermanent hell of course he doesn't believe it's permanent in the end he connects it to the suffering of Christ and he doesn't really state what this means but the implied meaning is that Christ is with the people who are suffering in the hell and that will lead them out of it and i think later on in the 20th century the reformed theologian jürgen moltmann says something similar in a more explicit fashion that christ is really with those people who have completely abandoned him and he goes to that situation and is in in hell in hades with the people because of his crucifixion uh, so that's the aspect you know and another aspect is that I want to refer to in regards to punishment and to hell is that some people, you know, say that if you don't have this eternal punishment, 
<laughs> then you're really not taking evil seriously. Of course, I don't think there would be a Christian universalist who wouldn't take evil seriously. But I think mm. it needs to be stated very clearly that the why we are saved out of any potential for eternal, you know, destruction is because of what Christ did. With this, I don't mean that there was any any possibility that we would go to hell because that was never God the Father's intention. But there, you you can be a universe person who believes in universal salvation and believe that without the sacrifice of Christ, we wouldn't have that assurance. You know, and of course, this is a very complicated question, because what if we hadn't sinned and so far? What what if we hadn't fallen? But I still think that what Christ would have done anyway is always become a human and always be empathetic to whatever that is happening. And I think it's God's empathy and love that really saves us. And because the problem is that if you sort of just think that you are saved because you know that if you just forget about the idea that we are ultimately you know i think in the lutheran in the lutheran tradition you actually have the same understanding as in calvinism of this total depravity and and i think you can believe in total depravity and be a person who believes in universal salvation there was a 20th century uh uh reformed Uh, French philosopher called Jacques Ellul, who believed in universal salvation and said that because he's a horrible sinner and he's going to be saved, that means that God can and will save everybody. So, you know, you have to, and with this, I don't mean anything in contrary to like Thomas Talbot saying things like uh, that God can also, or you or anybody or me for that matter. what, What I don't mean is that God ever intended an everlasting hell or what I don't mean, it, and with total depravity, I don't mean that people don't have a desire for God in the heart of their hearts. But I believe for some reason it seems to be somehow hidden, and we really need the doctor of of what you, uh, the you know Christ as a doctor, as a medicine, as a person who gives medicine for our souls. And I think that's what the early universe, early church teachers who believe in universal salvation also taught is that. Without what that, because Christ became human, He's able to heal our wills from the inside, and yeah. that's really a quite a hopeful view. Because then you don't really have any reason anymore to say that all won't be saved. Because if I believe that my will was broken, but I was mm-hmm. saved, and I believe that's happened to me and a lot of people, and God is doing it all the time then that means that there's absolutely no case, no situation where you should be afraid for yourself or anybody else. And that really gives you a confidence in life for actually not to be ultimately afraid of anything. And that enables such psychological healing that it's almost, you know, incredible. But in the end, it's very normal. It's just that you have, because we are talking about the confidence in the here and now that universal salvation gives you and living in the kingdom. And I think it's really about just being normal <laughs> you're being at peace knowing that god's in control because uh, that's uh, because god's passion for us and what he did on the cross teaches us that and you mentioned of course, the hope that we have you mentioned the um, early church some of the early church fathers again just there when you were talking and so i remember uh, earlier you said you 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 found out about gregory of nyssa kind of earlier on in your journey, but you didn't really go there at that point. But now there, 
you must have more familiarity with some of the early church fathers and some of their thinking on these things. How has that how has that helped develop your theological perspective? Well, like I always said, this you know I've read the and I could recommend Ilaria Ramelli to anybody. She's this amazing scholar who's written like hundreds of articles or something like that. She's she's basically beyond comprehension. And and she was also involved in the conference that I did last year, Hope Conference in, in Finland. And mm-hmm. she's written a book, uh, a couple of books which are interesting. One of them is A Larger Hope, which is sort of a more accessible book about the history of universal salvation. And she's written the first part of the book. And the second, and then there's this very big uh volume that she did which is called apocatastasis the christ the what was it the exact title the christian doctrine of apocatastasis uh right so yeah that's that, a, that's almost a thousand pages and over three hundred dollars to yeah, purchase yeah i i but, bought it anyway but because yeah. i really it's a wonderful so, book yeah but the larger but but her book a larger hope volume one universal salvation from christian beginnings to julian of norwich is um is that that's out now, and that's my, that's that's about twenty dollars to get that, and it and it, it's a good summary of what you find in the in the in the bigger volume. Yeah, and I've actually I translated the no, and I didn't translate. I I made a summary or a or sort of an analysis, you know, a a summary of it basically, an extended summary of it in Finnish for the Finnish audience because Finns don't really know about you know regular people here don't know about the history of universal salvation and nobody's really really written in, you know that much about it in an understandable fashion so i just i was really i'm really excited because the thing that i find in the early the thing that really excites me is that we already talked about gregory of nyssa you know and gregory of nyssa was one of the people who formulated the doctrine of the trinity as was uh, the church father origin in the second and the third centuries. So for them, you know, the whole system is so, uh, what excites me kind of is the, the way that they think and the way that they approach the thing. It's, it's, it's so alive and it's so sort of self-evident and there isn't actually much of a problem because people were completely allowed to teach this. You know, Greg, Gregory of Nyssa, you know, taught it in his great catechism to, you know, just create normal Christians or people who teach Christians, I don't know which one, but anyway, it was completely public that he taught that everybody shall praise God in harmony in the end. And these are the people who formulated basic, uh, uh, these are people who formulated basic Christian doctrines about, uh, about God and the Trinity. And what I feel like what's very interesting uh, about these people is, is that like I said, that it's just completely. There's no problem. The the only problem that came uh, came into service was with Augustine. You know, but even Augustine, the famous West Church uh, Western Church father, didn't say that all the universe, people who believe in universal salvation are heretics. That wasn't the case in the fourth yeah. century. He said that there are a lot, even potentially, uh, even a majority of Christians who believe that God is going to be merciful to all. And he said that they're not correct, but they, he still said that these people are biblical and try to be biblical at least. So he didn't mm-hmm. condemn them. So what I mean is that the whole approach 
the whole situation was just so completely different. And also the early church fathers, what has been exci- interesting to me, is that they uh, almost all of them believed in free will. But what, what free will meant to them is that God can heal everybody, that our wills are going to be freed and that we have a potential to be freed, that we are not locked into a certain destiny where we are going to be either saved or not saved. Because that was a heresy called Gnosticism, where you thought that there are people who are good and people who are bad, and good people are going to be with the real true God who wasn't even the creator God, and the bad people are never going to be with God. So that was actually a heresy in the early church, this Gnosticism, and it involved a separation of people into those who are saved and those who will never be saved. And the early church father Origen, who was like appreciated by pretty much everybody in the early church originally, said that uh, the reason why he made his defense for universal salvation was against this sort of Gnostic thinking where people are just predestined to salvation or not. And he said that we have free will, which means that God can free our will through Christ, who is the one who frees our will by becoming human. So basically, the doctrine of of this uh, uh, of incarnation was made very specific. The doctrine of incarnation and the idea of absolute, you know, humanity's absolute connection to God in the ultimate sense was made clear by Origen. And also these people, you know, like Origen and especially then Gregory of Nyssa, when they were thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity, which was a controversial subject in the 4th century especially, what what uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa said is that, you know, the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where it said that, uh, you know, Christ will finally, once everything's been subjected to Christ, Christ will submit himself to God the Father so that God will be all in all. There was a group of people who were anti-Trinitarians called the Arians, and they thought that what that means is that God, <coughs> that <coughs> ultimately uh, Christ is, uh, sub, you know, not on the same level as the actual That's God. You know that He will submit and be below, uh, below uh, God. But what Saint Gregory of Nyssa and other people like him thought and interpret the way they interpret this passage is they said that. Submission means actually salvific submission. So when Christ submits himself to the Father, it's he is doing something. He is kneeling before the Father in order to give the whole universe in praise to Christ. So it's like all of humanity and even all of cosmos is part of Christ. And in order to enable us bowing down, to God and in order and through all of us doing that in Christ we we submit to Christ so Christ in his human nature but through his own divinity through his power the power of his blood is enabling the submission the salvific submission the confession submission of all to of all to God the father so what this means is that they formulated they made the doctrine of Trinity very clear in order to support universal salvation. And what this means, you know, because Arians didn't, I don't know what they exactly thought about universal salvation, but if you just Mm -hmm. think is that, you know, there are people like Jehovah's Witnesses who believe similarly that Christ is 
merely the first creation and not on the same level of God as God, and they don't believe in universal salvation. And uh, you know, if you just think that Christ is just submitting himself to God, then that submission starts to mean inferiority. When s- submission doesn't mean inferiority, it means connection and praise. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I think. That's how how they formulated the Trinity. So the doctrine of Trinity is essentially connected to universal salvation. And that's what I felt in my vision of the cross. And all of this just confirms it. And I think that the world that they were living in was quite different than the traditions we have now. And like free will for them was an essential for confirming universal salvation. Nowadays. People say that because we have free will, we can refuse God and might end up going to hell. For Origin and those folks, they said because we have, because precisely because we have free will, that actually means that Christ can and will heal everybody. That there's nobody who's unhealable to Christ. Because uh, Plato, the famous Greek philosopher, uh, thought that there are people who cannot be cured at the end because they become so depraved and evil. But mm-hmm. Origen said exactly contrary to this famous philosopher that there's nobody who is uh, uncur- incurable to Christ, the great healer in, in God. And, and which uh, basically is referring to the idea that nothing is impossible for God, the biblical idea. Well, the free will argument is really interesting when you start looking at how it was actually a positive, free will was a positive thing for origin in a way that God would ultimately restore the whole creation. You mentioned uh, Augustine, who came along uh, afterwards, but it was his theology, he didn't, his theology uh, was centered on the idea that, that there would be this ultimate division between those who were eternally with God and those who were eternally separated from God. And it was his theology that then dominated the Western Christian church and that Western Christian tradition so that even when the Protestant Reformation came along, even the reform, even a lot of the reformers, uh, even though they had different ideas about how salvation came through faith, they still had that background, a lot of Augustinian ideas about, well, there's going to be this eternal hell and this eternal heaven, and there's this total depravity, and people are headed to one direction or the other. And so for me, it was really helpful to find out that that whole worldview uh, wasn't what had always been. That there, that, yes, there was this Augustinian tradition that became very strong in the Western church, but before that, for many centuries, there was this flourishing Greek speaking church that had these that had this very wonderful trinitarian christian universalist theology and that just really helped me to know that oh well i can understand oh i i can understand how the augustinian tradition developed but but that doesn't mean that that augustinian tradition has to define all of christianity forever that's exactly right and the thing is that in the orthodox church they consider augustine to be a saint also in the eastern orthodox church which is the you know the second major branch of you know ancient christianity and uh, what basically ha- the case in the eastern church is that even currently right now it's possible to be a public a believer and proclaimer of universal salvation uh, without right. much of a problem at least not in the same way as you might have 
in the Catholic Church, for instance, but in the Catholic Church, there are more and more people like Ilaria Ramelli who talk about it, at least academically and sometimes even more than academically, because even they are becoming aware that the early church actually did not condemn universal salvation. There's some being some misunderstanding about it, like you talk about it in your book, that people think that a general church council in the 6th century condemned universal salvation. But without going into details, most scholars nowadays, as far as I understand, don't believe that that was actually the case. And another interesting thing relating to the people, you know, another branch of the church which people usually don't know anything about, there's a church called the Church of the East, uh, which still exists in a small form. I don't remember the exact name of the church nowadays. It's an ancient Christian tradition, which reached even to up to China in the medieval times, and it's separated from the rest of the big church in the fo- in in the fourth or fifth centuries because of you know different understandings about how Christ's divine and human nature relate. So it's also mm-hmm. known as the Nestorian Church. But nowadays, it was considered heretical, but nowadays the Catholic and the Orthodox Church also cooperate with them. So it it's not actually heretical. And this Eastern, this Church of the East has always, like even in the medieval times, it was completely, you know, valid for them to believe in universal salvation. And there are theologians like from the 13th century who write about universal salvation in that church tradition. So it's just interesting that this universal tradition of universal salvation never actually really died out. And the further east you go, sort of, the, fur- the closer you come to the actual area, like the Church of the East really was, you know, influential originally in Iraq, sort of near Palestine. The closer you come to you know, from the West and then to the Eastern Orthodox and even further East, the Church of the East, you sort of come closer to understanding where you know that you implicitly know and sometimes explicitly that the love of God extends even to hell. And that's what like also some Eastern Orthodox theologians who were really there quite near Palestine, like uh, Isaac of Nineveh in the, I think it was in the 7th century, uh, also mm-hmm. said that the you know it's a blasphemy to say that the love that the fire of hell could be anything except the fire of the love of God, because there's no hatred or enmity in God, and this was basically he was talking about universal salvation, and <clears throat> and for like you know people in the East, old church, well this is not you know. The, the really interesting thing that for all of these people in the ancient church, it was really about the Trinity. It was really about Christ being the healer of our wills. It was about basic Christian doctrines, about mm-hmm. Christ saving us. And it was about also for even, you know, for instance, for origin, it was about the blood of Christ being powerful enough to save. And that's quite of a powerful argument because, you know, even in evangelicalism and in other traditions, you talk about the blood of Christ, just, you know, being salvific or covering you or or cleansing out sins. And that was also what you believed in the early church. And they said that the, there's such power in the blood of Christ that they believe that it will it will cover the entire universe and everybody and save everybody. Because otherwise, basically, I think Origen was implying that if you say that everybody's not going to be saved, you're saying something against the blood of Christ, which is kind of a big accusation. A big, but they, he really, really believed that it's in the love and the essence of Christ. And it's all really, 
now we come because of this early church i think we come to the core of this issue that it's really all about who god is and what god god does on the cross and in in who he is it's not about you know the universal salvation isn't about debates about oh how are even the most difficult cases to going to be saved or how can you argue f- f- for it it's really about who god is and who he is in jesus christ for those early church people and and you know as the idea of the cross of christ being really for the entire salvation of the universe and it's really connected you know about you know the, the immensity to the infinitude of who god is his absolute and glorious love which is made absolutely manifest on the cross of christ and you know you know you can just wonder and be awed at the power and the miracle you know of god's saving power which reveals his essence to the plenitude to the fullness and i think this is also what ilaria ramelli who when we talking about the the church, the early the scholar who studies early church he said that apocatastasis is going to be a, the restoration of all things is going to be a miracle of god and i think she's also pointing out to this wonder and amazement about who god is and what she what god is doing well there's a i mean what i take away from all of this is that is that uh, I know that some people have concerned that if we if, if you have this understanding of universal salvation that somehow it will empty out the 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 importance of proclaiming the gospel right now and I think anybody that's listened to this uh, listened to to your talking listened to us talking about about this could understand that uh, this does not empty out the gospel it, to me it fills the gospel with its full with its full power and splendor to me it's it's the whole gospel it's all it's all of the good news that's right and when you can present, when you can present all of the good news uh, for somebody and you can tell them here's why all of the good news is important to you right now and important to the world right now and here's why all of the good news will always be important and and the good news is so good that ultimately it will lead to the restoration of all people and all of creation that that can free up a lot of good things to happen right now i think one of the things that's going on is that people in the world we get divided to from each other and we think of us versus them but if you have this idea that of universal salvation and you think every single person is my eternal brother or sister uh, for yes. whom christ has died and and our ultimate destiny is to be together eternally then then that makes it a lot easier for me to to say it's not really us versus them it's all of us together as children of god being eternally loved by christ and so that just to me that would bring that would make the world such a better place if people believe that and i absolutely you know that's been my experience in my personal life you know because you're going to always in your personal relationships or in, in your your friendships in 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 your career or non-career or anything you can have so many issues about you know trusting other people and being you know feeling bad that people don't understand you and it all sort of start, starts to it doesn't mean that things are going to be easy if you believe in universal salvation but if you believe in this power of god and and his absolute love without hindrance that's going to lead all of us together then you know that there might be difficulties and people might not understand you but first of all you won't be sort of like 
clinging to other people for assurance because you have the assurance of the gospel that Jesus absolutely loves you. So you're not going to be disappointed if people are disappointing like all of us can be. And we can be disappointing to ourselves too. So you're not going to be disappointed about that ultimately. Of course, this can be difficult. And also if there's like difficult moments where you don't see a solution, you can, you know that there's going to be a solution in the end, at least through what God does. And you can just pray and be confident in your prayer that God will, that even in the here and now, it is possible and more than possible for God to hear you. Because there's also the gospel promises of Christ actually saying that whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. And what uh, that only makes sense in a context of universal salvation, because what Christ really wants to pray, us to pray for, is a healing of relationships and healing of like faith. And I, I really, I really believe, and this is just my personal experience, is that this can bring peace, such peace to people. And I'm just speaking, of course, through my own perspective, that how mm-hmm. he has helped me, even when I have very difficult moments. And again. You, you mustn't think, and I don't think anybody is trying to promise that if you believe in universal salvation, that life is going to be easy. But it will make things bearable if you concentrate on the core of the gospel and the reason for universal salvation. And the reason is God. The reason is his love. And, you know, the reason is is how much he loves us and he has created us through, in, and for his love. Well, and I'm really, know, you, pleased, yeah. really pleased that you have... Um, that you have come to this throughout your throughout your experience growing up in the church and how you've been able to put this together uh, theologically. And I'm looking forward to your work that you're going to be completing in your doctoral program and your uh, your your publication when it uh, when it finally comes out. I think that'll be a really a, a good help for this discussion as it's as it's going to continue to take place within the Lutheran Church but also within the larger uh, Christian community. So thank you, Petri, for everything you've been, you've been doing. It's been a pleasure to meet you, and I, I look forward to um, talking to you more in the future. Good luck on your continuing work on your, uh, on your doctoral program. Is there any, anything else you want to leave with us uh, 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 as we're signing off this time? First of all, I'm very happy. I've been very happy to talk with you and really happy to you know, just think about all the aspects of what God loves means for us in practice and for for theology, you know. And one thing I'd like to at least say is that people sometimes think that universal salvation sort of unravels the, you know, everything about Christianity, like somehow it's a danger to Christianity. When, but I think personally, it's the absolute opposite. It brings everything in, in basic Christian doctrines and ba- together. And also, like we talked about, it enables, you know, like just, you know, confidence in your daily life. So I think one thing that I've come to the, you know, through my thesis study also, I've when I've read, I've, one of my sources is Thomas Talbot, his book, The Inescapable Love of God. And what I really get out of it even more than his arguments for universal salvation is the idea that you can, you know, you don't know everything about life, but you can really bet on hope. And that's a bet that, you know, there will be, that's a wager that you won't lose anything on because it will enable you to, you know, you know, to have what we've talked about here a confidence and a peace. And that's what I really want to encourage people 
that's why I want to encourage people believe in universal salvation. It's not some for some weird doctrinal reason. It's really to help people, to help myself to have that confidence in God and your in your daily life. And maybe a final thing after all of this is is that I was thinking about the you know the verse because we've been talking about the power of the gospel. I was thinking about John 3:16 about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Mm-hmm. But people forget often forget about the following verse that uh, God didn't send his son to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And I think that should also uh, you know enlighten our understanding of what the John 3.16 means, which has also been important to me when I've been thinking about the importance of faith. And the way I've started to understand that passage is that God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son so that all believing in him uh, would not be in the state of perishing, but have right now the life that is for the ages. So what I mean, that's my sort of translation in my heart for that passage, because I believe it's saying, you could say that, <coughs> I think it's saying that all will eventually believe, or God, Christ is looking at the world as if it's as if it's believing already. And that's, I think, another practical thing we can have. Like, we might not see everybody consciously believing in Christ right now, but we can approach people in a way that we believe that Christ is doing their work in them, in us, and leading us to that common understanding and faith. Well, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful sentiment for us to uh, conclude on. Thank you so much for visiting with us. Look forward to talking to you. Uh, talking with you in the future. I think you have a lot to say. We've kind of just scratched the surface here. And so good luck and God bless in your continuing ministry and your scholarly pursuits. And we'll look forward to the next time we get to talk. Okay. Thank you very much, David. And God bless you with your podcast and everything you're doing with your book and otherwise. It's really helpful that you, you focus on the most important thing of all, which is grace. All right. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Thanks. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.